a deep, deep privilege to take the short drive from York, where I live uh, with my wife and two kids and one on the way, and come here and worship with you this morning. I love seeing a church that is as committed to the work of missions as this one clearly is. And it's also a privilege and a joy, you can imagine for me, uh, to be able to work with missionaries all day, every day in my full-time job. Uh, So full disclosure, I am not a missionary. Uh, If you have any complaints about the fact that I'm the uh, presenter and and person delivering the word this morning, that's fine, and you can lodge all of your complaints to my email address, which is mwatson at mountcalvarychurch.org. But once you're done and you have all those complaints out of your system, I do have the privilege of serving with ABWE as our Director of Advancement and Mobilization, and basically I get to work and walk alongside of people that are sensing the leading of God on their lives towards career missions, as well as the churches that are sending them. And a privilege to work with an organization. We're in 70 countries. We have about 1,000 missionaries doing evangelism, discipleship, and church planting, and partnering with nationals. And so meeting people like uh, the Bells and the Buckmans, you realize that these are ordinary people, And yet, as the book of Hebrews says, these are those of whom the world is not worthy. The people that go out, as 3 John says, accepting nothing from the pagans, going out for the sake of the name, and people like these we should support. And so it's a huge encouragement to see the heart that this church has for the nations. But because I'm not a missionary, it can be challenging and stressful and discouraging to look out on the immensity of the task laid before all of us, whether we're abroad or whether we're here at home, and realize the depth of the mission and the work that needs to be done. There's more than 7,000 ethno-linguistic people groups that have no or little to no gospel witness. So these are people, about 2.9 billion of them, depending on how you count, and there's many ways to count, that will be born that will live, and that will die without ever hearing the name Jesus Christ explained in a meaningful fashion from a believing Christian. That's heavy. And we look here at home and things aren't much better. Some would characterize our own home turf as post-Christian. That's maybe not the best term, but we know what it means. We're seeing our own land slip away from us. It looks like In many ways, the gospel is receding instead of advancing, and it can be discouraging. And so the question that I want to ask this morning is, what is the power of God for missions? What power is available to us for this immense task? Because we have a mandate. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth belong to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, and I'm with you even at the end of the age. What power do we have to do that? I don't know about you, but when I look within myself, I don't see a lot of power, a lot of capacity for this high calling. Some think the power, the answer The silver bullet is in meeting people's needs, maybe just meeting the needs that they feel or sense that they have. I received an encrypted voice message from a missionary who's a friend of mine who's serving in a difficult, uh, restricted country in the Islamic world in Asia, and he shared that he's aware of missionaries 
who this is their method of sharing the gospel. They'll approach someone and say, hey, what would make your life better? Well, what are the typical answers? Well, more money would help. Uh, maybe a healthier marriage, better family, better crops, depending on the context. So you get these typical answers, and then the missionary at that point says, okay, well, and then in Jesus' name, and then they pray that they would receive those earthly temporal blessings. And then that's it. That's the evangelistic encounter. And we would look at that from our perspective, and we would say, hey, that's prosperity teaching. That's taking the eternal promise of the gospel, of eternal blessings, and perverting it into physical, earthly, temporal blessings. Things that are good in and of themselves, but that's not what the gospel is about securing. Does the power for missions come in clever strategies, clever turns of phrase, clever methods of trying to get people to see the value of Jesus for their earthly desires? I would say that's not where the power is. The power doesn't come from any of our creativity, any of our strategies. It doesn't come from meeting felt needs. It doesn't come from being the masters of culture and language, as important as those things are. It doesn't come from calling down miracles. And it certainly doesn't come from modifying our message that we go to proclaim. In the Apostle Paul's day, the proposed answer would have been that our power is in rhetoric. The turns of phrase you use, your tone, your nuance, your winsomeness, that was the power. So much so that the church became divided over its favorite rhetoricians over its selected celebrity pastors and tribes and factions formed over who the favorite celebrity minister was. Sound familiar? We're in much the same setting in our day. Turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to take a larger text of scripture and we'll work through it. First Timothy, uh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18, and we'll read to chapter 2, verse 5. This is the word of God. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, 
who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Join me in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you in the Spirit through your Son. We ask that you'd bless the ministry of your word this morning. I ask that you'd be with my lisping, stammering tongue to be able to take this word and eliminate me from the equation. Lord, let your word be what is communicated. Speak to us. Let your will be done in our midst. We pray that the result would be worship and obedience to you and that you would see fit to use us to spread the fame of your name among all the nations, no matter what role we'll play in that. Lord Jesus, glorify yourself in and through this church and through this time in your word. In Christ's name, amen. So where is the power of God for missions located? If you're writing our point this morning, if you're a note taker, The power of God for our mission is found in the foolishness of God in the cross, the foolishness of his servants in the church, and the foolishness of the message we preach. Again, the power of God for our mission is found in the foolishness of God in the cross, the foolishness of his servants in the church, and the foolishness of the message that we preach. So for the Corinthian church to mature, to be blessed, to be used of God, They had to strip away their false loves, their infatuation with the orators of their day. And for us too, if we want God to take this church and use it, we have to reckon ourselves to the true source of our power on mission. So let's dive deeper into the first point drawn from verses 18 through 25. The power of God is found in the foolishness of God in the cross. Paul begins, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So first he identifies this word of the cross. This is not the word of my cross that I bear or your cross that you bear. In other words, this is not a message that suffering in general is redemptive. Self-denial is important. It's an essential ingredient in anyone's self-discipline. And, of course, Jesus calls us to pick up our crosses and follow him. And that's true, but that's not what is in view here. What's in view is not just any cross, but the word of the cross of Christ. This is Christ's cross. And the gospel here is referred to simply as the word of the cross. What is the gospel? It's the word of the cross. In a previous ministry, I was working in a church, pastoring students, and we had a woman who wanted to volunteer with our ministry. We have a pretty simple interview process. I asked her one question, and that's this. What is the gospel? 
pretend I'm a student, explain it to me. And she thought for a moment, very nice lady, church lady, and she finally responded, well, the gospel is God's rules for our lives. It's that he wants us to love God and love other people. It's that God has a better way for us to live. And while it's true that God wants us to love him and others, immediately I felt what I hope you're feeling as well, which is inside I I, I screamed, not audibly, that's the law. That's what damns you. The fact that God wants you to love God and love neighbor. That's what sends you to hell. Because I haven't loved God and loved my neighbor as myself for a waking moment of my life as much as I should in the eyes of a holy creator. That's good advice. That's a good way to live. That's not the good news of the gospel. We talked about the fact that the gospel is not just, hey, God loves you and means well and wants you to live a certain way, but rather it's the fact that Christ, in dying and rising for sinners, in taking their punishment and rising victoriously, did for us what we could never do for ourselves, no matter how much good advice we receive. We talked about that. Within a month or two, she was miraculously born again. She met with my wife and I over coffee and shared how sins that had afflicted her before that she was addicted to, she was now being able to give those things up and experiencing fresh power in her life. There was repentance there that there wasn't before. She had shifted from religious self-reliance to reliance upon the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's the power of the word of the cross. The gospel is the word of the cross. It's not anything that I do. It's not the announcement that, well, God just has a simpler way for you to live now than he did under the old covenant. No, God's high standard has not changed, but Christ met that standard for us. That's the good news. The gospel is Christ crucified. Paul summarizes it in a bit more detail later in chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accord with the scriptures. And yet it's the cross that Paul reduces this gospel to. The gospel front loads the offensive parts. Whatever was most likely to alienate his hearers, Paul was willing to stress that. He didn't downplay the rough edges, the serrated sides of the gospel. If the power for mission was found in our own ability to be persuasive, to be reasonable, then this is evangelistic suicide, front-loading the offensive parts. But of course, the power is not in us. And this is a message with its serrated edges that divides. It says the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So there's two groups. There's those who are being saved and those who are perishing. And there's an echo in here of what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. So the gospel is power, but it's a power that splits, that divides those being saved from those perishing. And the emphasis in those terms is on the ongoing journey. We are all careening towards eternity, some to damnation, others to life. Judgment is real. Hell is real. Hell is hot. Heaven and eternal life are real. The resurrection is real. But notice how he splits this up. Those who are perishing, those who deserve to die. Well, 
we all know from John 3.16 that we all deserve to perish. And yet, not all do, because there are those who are perishing and there are those who are being saved. Why doesn't he group everyone in among those who are perishing? All deserve to perish, but not all do. Why is that? Why does the gospel divide humanity the way that it does? Why does it land on some people as folly and on others as the power of God? If you take a jar of oil and a jar of water, you mix them together in one sealed container, you shake it up, it's going to look like it's forming some sort of mixture until you set it down and eventually it will settle, right? Same if you take some sand and sediment and mud and put it in with water and shake it up, let it sit, eventually you'll see separation, In one case, it's separating based on its chemical composition. In the other case, it's separating based on on weight. What is that criteria, that criterion by which the gospel separates those who are being saved from those who are perishing? What is the determining factor that puts you in this category or this category? Verse 18, we look at it, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Well, the difference between The group that's being saved and the group that isn't being saved is these people have believed. So they're on their way to heaven. But that doesn't quite answer it. It's a truism. You're begging the question. Why don't they believe? And these people do. Still doesn't answer the question. Maybe it's, well, only those who hear the gospel are the ones who are being saved. But Maybe the people who are perishing are just the ones who've never heard it, who've never had a chance to respond. That's one theory, but Paul specifically says that to those who are perishing, it's folly. The gospel is foolishness. That implies that they've heard it, that they're responding to it, and they're responding to it in a way that's not favorable. Their reaction implies knowledge. So what is the difference? Why are some here and some here? What is the distinction between these two groups? First, Paul wants us to know what it isn't. So in verses 20 through 21, where is the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? And he's pulling from Isaiah chapter 29, where God announces judgment on the people that was going to come in the form of the exile. In verses 13 and 14, and the Lord said, because this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me, And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning shall be hidden. So God sees through our outward religious performance. He sees through our spiritual rituals, our acts, So that can't be the determining factor. In fact, Jesus quoted the same passage with regard to the Pharisees. God sees through human pomp. So in Christ, God was getting ready to act in a way in history that would have nothing to do with human status or strength or privilege. So it has nothing to do with our outward religiosity. And then he makes a contrast in verse 22. Not only is he distinguishing between those who are being saved and those who are perishing, he also distinguishes between Jew and Greek in verse 22. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. So by the Greeks, he's indicating all of the non-Jewish people, all of the people in the Hellenistic, the Greek-speaking world. In a sense, he's referring to all non-Jews. And then you have, on the other hand, the Jews. 
So faced with Christ crucified, the Jews and the Greeks both react negatively, but in different ways. The Jews want miraculous signs. They want Jesus to prove that he's the Messiah and he's about to overthrow the Romans. Right? You see that in John chapter 6, verse 30. What sign will you give us so that we'd believe? No matter how many miracles he had done, they wanted more. They wanted an outward show of power. And then the Greeks, on the other hand, these were the philosophers. These were the people that believed that crucifixion was the lowest form of death fit only for a criminal, and it was, but the idea then that a spirit being or a god or the god would lower himself to this physical, earthly, dirty plane violated all of their philosophical presuppositions. And they thought that the whole idea of a resurrection, of, a, of an embodied life after death, was foolishness. You see that in Acts chapter 17. When Paul mentions the resurrection, that's when they're like, I'm not going to listen to this. And so for the Jews, the cross was a stumbling block, a scandal on, a scandal. It was scandalous. It was unthinkable. It was outrageous that the Messiah of Israel would be flayed alive on a piece of wood. And for the Greeks in the flesh, their reaction wasn't much better. The reason I labor this particular point is because the situation isn't much different on the mission field today. The cross is still foolishness. To the atheist who sees a dead rabbi or a myth, the cross is still foolishness. To the Muslim, the cross is still foolishness because he's told in the Quran in Surah 4, 157, that Isa ibn Maryam, Jesus, son of Mary, was never crucified. God doesn't let bad things like that happen to his righteous prophets. To the postmodernist, to the person on the college campus here in the United States, the cross is foolishness because how could God really require us to be perfect? How could God condemn someone? How could God kill someone, judge someone? How could God have standards about sexuality or any of the other things that nailed Jesus to the cross? How could God require me to believe in this way and not in any other way? So whatever the criteria is that separates those who believe from those who are perishing, it's not human wisdom. It's not how well you know Old Testament law. It's not how well you know philosophy. Verse 24 gives us the answer. What's the difference between those who are perishing and those who are being saved? It's this. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. God must call you out of death into life. And this isn't just the general call, the outward call of the gospel. This isn't just humanly standing here and calling and saying, turn to Jesus, repent, believe, be saved. And that's the call we must bring to the nations, but that's not the only call that's in view here. What's in view here is the inward call, the moment when God takes that message proclaimed and he opens your heart and he makes it irresistible to you. Your eyes are opened. Your sin is suddenly ugly. You want to turn from it. You want to embrace Christ. You depend on him in faith. The blinders fall off. That's how Paul is using the word call all throughout chapter 1, starting from verse 2, to the saints, to the church, called to be saints together with those who in every place believe. Call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The church is called Again, in verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. So God called you to be a Christian. And then you see it repeated throughout the text that we read at the beginning, verses 26 through 31 of chapter 1. 
you see this repeated refrain, consider your calling, brothers. And then three times he says, God chose, God chose, God chose. God must choose to call. He is free to save whomever he wants. Exodus thirty three nineteen. God says to Moses, Paul quotes this in Romans 9, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. What separates those who are being saved from those who are perishing? Nothing except for the grace of God. And if that offends you, the idea that God would call some and not others, the idea that God would choose some and not others, here's a gut check. Do we really believe that we are all dead in sin, as Ephesians 2.1 says? Do we really believe, Romans 8.8, 8, that those who are in the flesh cannot please God? Do we really believe that? Or do we believe that we're just sick or in need of a little bit of encouragement? If this is the case, if we are truly dead in our sin, unwilling to turn to Christ as Lord and Savior, unwilling to submit our lives to God, unwilling to trust him with our salvation, unwilling to follow him, then God isn't obligated to anyone to save them. He's not forced to save anybody. He could choose no one. But instead, God, being rich in mercy, chose to save some. And because they're dead, he must do all the work to save them. Not half of the work, and then they have to respond, but all the work. So the question is, how should God save? What should be his method? What means should he use? And here's what he doesn't use that we've seen in the text. He doesn't use human skill in preaching. He doesn't use our creative outreach strategies, as good as those things are. Although I can see logistically how a glow-in-the-dark Easter egg hunt could go poorly, but concept is A+. (laughs) He doesn't use our efforts to sociologically hotwire these movements where as many people will come to Christ as possible. He doesn't use the, the best bands or the best light shows or Greek philosophy or Old Testament law. No. In the wisdom of God, the world didn't know God through wisdom, he says in verse 21. God gave humanity a chance to find him. Paul says in Acts chapter 17, verses 26 through 27, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps find their way towards him. And yet they didn't. None of the nations reached out for God. God has to act. And when he chose to act, he chose a method that would save all the credit for him. And so he chose a staros, a cross, a shameful bloody piece of wood so that it would be obvious that the power isn't ours, it's God's. So whatever externals we tend to associate with successful ministry, what do you think successful ministry looks like? What would a successful outreach look like? What is a successful healthy church looking like? What does it look like when God's power is with us. It's not when the music swells or reaches a certain crescendo. It's not when the numbers are coming in. None of those things can replace the cross. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. So if we want to see God's power for missions, number one, we look at the cross. And number two, we can look in the mirror. 
and look at our own foolishness and our own inadequacy. And so the second point, the power of God is located in the foolishness of God's servants in the church. The power of God is located in the foolishness of God's servants in the church. We will go through these remaining points at a faster pace. But he says, consider your calling, brothers. Verse 26, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. So Paul says, look in the mirror. Corinth was the upper crust of the Roman society. That's why they were so well known for their sexual immorality. Because they had the time and the money to do all sorts of shameful things. It's amazing how boredom breeds sexual immorality. But not many of the Corinthian church were the social upper crust. They weren't the cool table of society. Not many of them were. And we see it's because God chose, God chose, God chose the low and despised things of the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Think of the foolish things that God uses to gather a church. Would any of us think, hey, I have a great church growth strategy for Bosnia. Let's have someone die, and then the gospel's proclaimed at their funeral, and that's when the person's heart will start to change. Would anyone think of that strategy? God did. And God uses these foolish means so that he gets all the credit for the gathering of the local church. This church is here today because of the foolish, silly-looking ways that God used to scrape the bottom of the social barrel and put us together as his people, his body, his bride, the church, which is glorious, but humanly speaking, is awkward at times and not that impressive from a worldly standpoint. We're like the Israelites. In Deuteronomy 9, God reminds the Israelite nation at its birth of this. He says, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them, the Gentile nations, out before you, it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me to possess this land. Whereas it's because of the wickedness of the nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, that he may confirm the word the Lord gave to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he says this, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Isn't that true for us? I know it's true of myself. It's not because we're the best that the world has to offer that God has gathered us here using the foolish means of the gospel. So we ought to be extremely suspicious of any outreach method or strategy that holds itself up as saying, this is the way to do successful outreach, to do successful church planting, to be a powerful missionary. God uses the weak and the lowly things of the world. If we want to rely on our strength, true strength is Christ crucified for sinners. If we want to rely on education, true wisdom is Christ crucified for sinners. If we want to rely on our good intentions, true righteousness is Christ crucified for sinners. So if we want to see the ordinary power that shakes nations and brings them in, look in this room at this Disparate, ragamuffin, ragtag, band of sinners. Christ crucified is what brought this church together. Christ crucified is the only thing that will gather his people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so finally and briefly, Paul explains 
what this meant for him practically. Knowing all this, knowing that God uses the cross, knowing that God uses the folly of the cross to gather together this foolish, beautiful thing called the local church. And faithful and healthy missions, by the way, exists to plant churches and to multiply them. Paul explains, okay, how did I apply this in my ministry as an apostle? The third and final point, the power of God is located in the foolishness of the message we preach. And we see that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And the selection of the word in that point, the message we preach, the word preach is intentional there because so often, we mentioned in the Bible study hour this morning, we don't talk about preaching and proclaiming. Instead, we use euphemisms like sharing the gospel or discussing the gospel which is perfectly fine, except the New Testament talks about preaching, proclaiming, announcing. Why? Because the gospel is news. It's not a suggestion. It's not good advice. It's not a multi-level marketing scheme. It's news. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So he didn't rely on flowery oratory or philosophy. What's cool is, read this on your own time later this afternoon, up against Acts chapter 18. That's where Paul went and preached the gospel in Corinth. So we get to see the narrative version of exactly what Paul describes here. And it says that he was in the synagogue reasoning every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. That's Acts chapter 18, verse 4. So we know that he wanted to persuade Listen, there's nothing wrong with being persuasive. But his trust was not in his persuasiveness. Paul's trust was in the gospel. And when he reasoned with them, he didn't reason with philosophy, but with the testimony of God. The word here is the same word from which we get the English word martyr. And the idea isn't necessarily just dying for a cause, but the idea is that of the report of a witness. If a witness tampers with his testimony, if he embellishes in the slightest bit, he's no longer a true witness. The best witness is one who doesn't embellish, right? Who doesn't alter the facts of the story. And the gospel is what we bear witness to. It's not ours to tamper with. We don't get to saw off the rough edges. And then in verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's a bit of hyperbole on Paul's part here. We already saw in chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, that for Paul, this was referring to the cross and the empty tomb and the ascension and rule and reign of Christ. All of that is bound up in the cross. Christ crucified is shorthand for the whole gospel. But he does front load the cross for his hearers because they needed to know in their pragmatic era that focused on outward success, much like ours, that there is no crown without a cross. There is no death without resurrection. There is no success without failure in the kingdom of God. There is no glory without humiliation first. The power of God is located in this foolish message. Paul's methodology flowed from his theology, his tactics flowed from the fact that Christ alone was the power of God for salvation. 
And finally, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. We can all relate. How many of us haven't sweated a little, maybe gotten some clammy palms when we go to share the gospel with someone? I'm very bad at this. I'll be perfectly honest with you. We've all felt fear and trembling. But for Paul, that phrase doesn't just refer to nervousness, although it certainly could, but it refers specifically to the seriousness of humbly undertaking a duty. In Philippians 2.12, Paul instructs the Philippian church to work out their salvation with phobos kytromos, the same phrase, fear and trembling. So it doesn't just mean sweaty palms, it means seriousness steadfastness, humility, solemnity. In Ephesians 6, 5, he says, Servants, obey your masters with fear and trembling as to the Lord and not unto men. And in 2 Corinthians seven fifteen, he commends the Corinthian church for receiving Titus with fear and trembling. Think of a missionary visiting in your midst. And there's fear and trembling. There's a seriousness of I'm showing hospitality to this individual on behalf of God. This is a serious thing. It's a joyful thing. It's a serious thing as well. And Paul came preaching this simple, unadulterated, offensive message of the cross with weakness and with fear and with much trembling. And my speech, verse 4, and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. So Paul lays out a foolish message and he trusts the Spirit of God to change people's hard hearts. And here's what happens in Acts 18 when he does that. And he might have been discouraged. And the Lord, verse 9, said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Verse 10, for I am with you and no one will attack you or harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And here's the conclusion. Christ had many in Corinth who were his people, whom he was calling, whom he had chosen, and whose hearts he was going to open to this foolish-sounding message of a crucified and risen Savior. And that remains the case in the world today. Christ knows who his people among the nations are. He will not rest until the full number of the people that he died for is brought in. Revelation 5, 9, and 10. The angels are singing. The people of God in heaven are singing, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. The Great Commission will be finished. Isaiah eleven nine. the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The guaranteed outcome is ours. Victory is in our hands. We're not polishing brass on a sinking ship. The world is being saved. God is going to finish his message, his mission. So why would we trust in any power other than the simple, spoken gospel message, sweaty palms and all, stammering lips, shared with fear and trembling to our fellow image bearers. Why would we trust in anything 
other than Christ crucified. Why not let him show off his power in our weakness through our lisping, stammering tongues with this foolish message that gathers foolish-looking local church assemblies displaying the foolishness of God in the cross. So applying this to our lives, first, we do have to reckon ourselves to the cross of Christ. God is holy. We are all careening towards heaven or hell, judgment or life. Christ was crucified. God took the sins of his people and laid them on Christ and raised him from the dead as Savior and Lord so that anyone who repents of their sin, who trusts in this reigning Lord of the universe, will be saved. So first, we have to recognize Christ crucified for our lives. Second, point of application, let's reject pragmatism and embrace proclamation. Don't be clever Don't be too clever or creative for God to bless your work. God wants it to be evident that the power is his, not ours. Instead, lean into proclamation. Don't just share or suggest Jesus, but preach and proclaim. Whether it's from a soapbox or whether it's over coffee, proclaim. And finally, guys, this is for you. This is for us all. This isn't just for the open-air gospel preacher at the funeral. This isn't just for the overseas missionary. This is for this church. Where's the power of God for missions? If it's in the gospel, here's the good news, church. Everyone in this room has that gospel already. Everyone already has that power. So for you to be a missionary or for you to support your children in being missionaries, as hard as that might be to say goodbye to them, or for your church to send and send well, or to train up the next generation and see a whole bunch of people sent off 10, 15 years from now, whatever that looks like. If you have the gospel, you have enough. You have all that you need to obey the Great Commission and to be effective and fruitful and faithful. That's not to say you shouldn't train and learn language and get funding. We, all of those things are implied. But if you have the gospel, you have what you need to see God work through you because you have in the word of the cross that foolish sounding thing that sounds unconvincing, you have the power of God to change hearts and gather his church from all the nations. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have seen fit to gather here a people for your name who've turned from sin and who've embraced this crucified and risen Christ. Lord, help us to preach the gospel. Lord, as Paul said, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Help us all to live on mission in our lives. And as we pray for and support missionaries, and as some people in this room may be led by your spirit to themselves go, help us to rely solely upon the proclaimed word, because Jesus, you save. We can't save. Our strategies, our events, we can do nothing to raise the dead. Only you can raise dead hearts. We thank you that you've raised ours for anyone in this room who does not yet know you. Lord, reveal yourself to them. Draw them to yourself. And 
stir in our hearts a response of worship as we sing to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.